Hey folks, welcome to another episode of The Investment News Podcast. I'm Jeff Benjamin, co-hosting along with Bruce Kelly, as always, or most days when one of us are not off, but uh, we're both here today. And we have with us today, Nick Freelingheisen, Managing Director, Portfolio Manager at Chilton Trust Company. And uh, what we're going to kind of unwrap today is the latest Biden tax proposal, I guess uh, colloquially named the Billionaire Minimum Income Tax by the White House. Uh, first of all, how you doing, Nick? And thanks for being here. Thank you, Jeff. It's good to be here. I'm doing well. Thank you. Give us a little bit of a background on Chilton Trust Company. I, I don't I don't know. I want to make sure our audience knows the uh, kind of the perspective that you're coming from here. Sure. So just quickly, um, Chilton Trust was founded in 2011 by Richard Chilton. He was he and his family were client number one. Um, we're a trust company with about seven billion in assets under management. Um, we're a little bit different than some trust companies in that uh, about 70 percent of the assets are managed internally. We actually do the equity and fixed income investing ourselves. Uh, and then we also have a, a external manager platform where we outsource um, for things that we believe are complementary, but the the trust company was really built around what is a you know a 42 year um, you know history of investing in individual stocks um, with Richard Chilton, and uh, the the company has a very sort of long term uh, emphasis on um, you know compounding wealth for clients, primarily in stocks, um, and that's sort of the uh, uh, the background. Um, we we sort of believe in running concentrated portfolios and not over diversified. Mm -hmm. And that the emphasis is on extremely high quality businesses where we have sort of a, a private mentality or ownership approach um, to taking very long-term stakes in, in, in companies that have, have really good managements and know how to allocate capital intelligently. All right, Bruce, any other uh, background questions for, for Nick before we start peppering him with questions about this big tax proposal? Not right now. My taxes are high enough. <laughs> so I live in New York. I mean, I live in a I live in uh, next to California in Massachusetts, right? One of the and New Jersey and Connecticut, one of the big high tax states. But I don't think I make enough, Jeff. You you might make enough to qualify for this. <laughs> I new. was just gonna say that your income is what's causing you so many. I out, tax I out Jeffed you. All right. I got to you the did. joke first. <laughs> all right. Well, so this tax right. might affect Jeff. Uh, Nick, more than me, but Jeff we'll is is one of the seven hundred households that this would actually yeah. potentially impact. Yeah, okay. I don't call them Benjamins for nothing, Jeff. Benjamin, maybe, you know? maybe if you put the income of my entire town together, we might get close. <laughs> yeah. but uh. yeah, I mean, so the 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 billionaire tax. I mean, what I'm going to tell you up front about the proposed billionaire tax, and that this doesn't mean that we can't talk about it because we should. It's gotten a lot of press and a lot of attention this past week. But mm -hmm. what I'm going to tell you is that it probably has a next to zero percent probability of actually passing. Um, the, what, what they're calling this sort of, you know, budget bill is sort of the build back smaller proposal versus mm -hmm. what the, the version that, you know, build back better 1.0 that passed the House last year. Um, but really, the, the, the Biden budget, I, I would sort of cast it more as an aspirational policy document that has sort of aims to to kind of shore up democratic political vulnerabilities 
in, in a lot of different areas before the midterms. And, you know, when I say vulnerabilities, I mean around, you know, fiscal responsibility, inflation. Um, they're proposing 32 billion in new, you know, crime spending. Um, and so the effort really here is to kickstart a conversation with Manchin, Joe Manchin in the Senate, and probably Kristen Cinema around what is going to ultimately be a much skinnier sort of scaled down reconciliation bill that can clear, you know, a 50-50 Senate solely with Democratic votes. But but the the, the bill, the, the budget that came out, it did include what a so-called billionaire tax. Right. That's um, what we is, want to talk about here. Which is it's a little bit of a misnomer because it's actually a 20 percent minimum tax uh, on the total income of individuals with greater than 100 million in wealth. And the idea behind it was that it would generate, you know, about 360 billion uh, in revenue over the next decade. And sort of the idea behind this is, you know, it, it was supposed to take the place of the income surtaxes that were the in the original Build Back Better bill that passed the House. And that was, you know, mm-hmm. up to 5% on adjusted gross income over 10 million or 8% over 25 million. So um, really what Biden's trying to do here is show you know, that they can reduce the deficit and then, you know, do so without raising marginal tax rates because Senator Sinema has, has stated that she's opposed to that. So um, the, the way it works is, you know, it's a, it's sort of a, over 10 years, the taxes from the first year of the proposal, you know, would go into effect January 1 of 23. And the idea is it's, you know, taxes on the value of unrealized gains, um, you know, accrued before the enactment of the of the legislation. Right, hold then, up, hold up there, Nick. I want to, yeah. I want to get in here and we're, we're kind of getting, please, you're kind of going where in a different direction here, but I, I want to talk specifically about this, this piece of the budget, this billionaire minimum income tax, uh, for a couple of reasons. One is it's, it's unprecedented by going after unrealized gains and, and the challenges there, I, I want to get into. Um, also, you know, I saw that the the estimated three three hundred sixty billion dollars in new revenue over the next decade. I don't know how much stock you put in those kinds of estimates, but you know, whenever you put a tax in front of really really rich people, they find a way around it. So I don't know how that three hundred that three hundred sixty billion assumes nothing changes and people continue to go drive their cars right into the wall of that tax for the next decade, but. Break down for us, Nick, how this tax would work and how, you know, I mean, assuming you don't have to believe in it or like it or or maybe you do, but just tell us how it it is designed to work, because that to me is the most interesting part of this thing is how they're the unrealized gains that they're going after. Well, I mean, you, you bring up a good point, which is the idea of taxing unrealized gains was sort of a dead issue for a couple decades, and it only came back sort of as a debatable topic in 2019 when Elizabeth Warren raised the idea. But, you know, there's been a lot of debate about whether or not, if you even pass the law, whether it would survive a challenge in the Mm -hmm. Supreme Court because the 16th Amendment in the Constitution gives Congress the power to tax incomes, right? But not wealth and property. The states can tax property, right? As you guys just alluded to earlier. But, um, you know, I'm not a constitutional scholar, but, you know, not only would sort of implementing the tax be incredibly complex, because, for instance, I mean, would you have to credit people back, you know, unrealized losses? I mean, Mark Zuckerberg sustained a huge loss 
in Facebook stock last year, he would be due an $8 billion credit. And sort of the way it would work is, you know, it would be a 20% minimum, including your income, but it would be on a rolling ledger that, that spans, you know, 10 years um, to make sure that the end of that, that period that you, you, you've paid mm -hmm. minimum. So, you know, it's, it's really, this idea has been floated before. It's, it's incredibly complex. And to your point, um, you know, it would create a cottage industry of, of people figuring out, you know, and appraisers right. and accountants figuring out how to manipulate it um, and sort of game, you know, valuation discounts. Um, so, you know, it, uh, Manchin on Monday kind of poured cold water over the idea and Pelosi last year had sort of said, you know, it's not really sort of practical, but it gave Biden a way to, to sort of, you know, introduce a budget that didn't raise marginal tax rates. The way you just so eloquently summed it up as this is something that doesn't look like it could ever see the light of day. Anybody that it seems has a basic understanding of, of, of taxes and economics understands that. Why does this thing keep bubbling to the surface, this idea of, of taxing unrealized gains? Because this isn't the first time we've heard about this. This is what makes me think there might be something to it eventually in some form. Yeah, no, it's I mean, you make a good point. It's it's really um, I mean, it's a populist democratic issue uh, around wealth disparity. And it's it represents, you know, wealth appreciation that is is tough to get at. Right. Because it's deferred. It's it's unrealized. But, you know, as I said, I mean, there's been a ton of legal debate about whether or not this is sort of, you know, constitutionally possible. It would definitely be challenged. Um, so, you know, and I think the, the other issue really is, um, look, uh, the idea of just increasing the capital gains tax rate was floated last year. And really, you know, there wasn't unanimity among Democrats on, on taxing capital gains at 30%, because if you look in, through history, once you actually, once the federal government taxes above 30% on capital gains, it tends to hurt capital formation. And it creates what's called a lock-in effect, where uh, you know people don't transact; they don't realize gains; they defer them even further. So, so to your point, this is sort of one of the only ways to get at that sort of deferred wealth appreciation. Um, but but you're right in that you know, based on the people that we speak to who are connected, um, you know, to staffers on the Hill, I, I honestly think this has an extremely low probability of passing. That doesn't mean it can't come up again. But this is really the one window, uh, because if you assume that the GOP is going to take back the House, which we believe they will, you know, that this wouldn't be an issue again, probably for three to four years. How is this different, this proposal from the wealth tax that we're always hearing about? Or is this essentially the same thing as that? No, this is very different. I mean, so the package that is going to come down the pike here and the debate will probably start in April between Manchin and Democratic progressives. Um, but what you're probably going to see, Jeff, in lieu of this discussion about taxing unrealized gains is you're going to see something uh, that looks a lot like what passed the House last year. And what that will be will be a surtax on people with with 10 million or more in adjusted gross income at 5%. And then if you, if you have 25 million or more in adjusted gross income, they're gonna layer up probably an 8% tax. Mm -hmm. So that's a way to get at 
um, you know, p- people in sort of the real estate and private equity, private equity world, the whole sort of carried interest loophole. But that, again, is income. That's not taxing wealth or property right. or unrealized gains. I'm going to let Bruce jump in here in a second. I'm sorry, Bruce. Um, the one more thing I wanted to ask you, because we, you did talk about the states have a, a different set of rules on these things. But I, I was thinking about this, and I pay property taxes, and they do that. They basically are taxing me on unrealized gains there, right? Yeah. I mean, they're, they're, ta- they're taxing you on property. That's correct. But they're taxing you on property based on their appraisal uh, on, a, on a however many years it goes by that they reappraise. Um, my house can go up and down in value, but if I don't sell it, I'm not realizing any of those gains. But they're, So how do they get away with it at the state level? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I mean, what's enshrined in the Constitution federally is sort of what, what people turn to. I mean, sort of state law is completely different. But I mean, I think, um, you know, in the, in the questions um, that you guys had, had sort of scheduled to tackle, you sort of cited the AMT and, and sort of said, you know, right. is this is this potentially slippery slope and going to uh, sort of, you know, apply to a wider group of taxpayers? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do think that this particular plan is probably dead on arrival, but you bring up a good point, right? Which is that sometimes when Congress passes tax law, um, you know, it's designed to target a very small slice of households, but then you have unintended consequences, right? So the, the AMT was designed to prevent wealthy people from paying too little in taxes, but then it ended up roping in almost 5 million taxpayers. And it had a really uneven effect where, you know, it hit taxpayers with kids mm-hmm. who were paying relatively larger state and local taxes, depending on which state you live in, because it, it disallowed those deductions, right? right. So a, a single mom with income of, say, like 100000 could be subject to the AMT because she just happened to have the wrong kind of deductions where somebody who has no kids and has a hundred million in say municipal, you know, bond income tax remunis could completely avoid the AMT. So, um, you know, sometimes when federal changes around tax law get passed, it, it, you know, down the road, it incents different kinds of behavior and it, it, it ends up not necessarily sort of, you know, being executed as it was intended. So, um, I think that was a good point, you know, that you brought yeah. that up because I, I think it could be the same sort of situation if you really tried to tax unrealized gains. Um, you know, it incents behavior to basically find ways around it. And I think people would, would definitely do that. Yeah. Bruce? Hey, Nick. Well, any change in the tax laws or creation of tax uh, loopholes is always going to create new types of opportunities either to invest or to uh, alter how you pay taxes right Nick yeah like these opportunity zones that were passed during the during the Trump administration I mean to my knowledge all the polls that people cite other news organizations cite is that um, taxing the rich is a very popular political <laughs> yeah nostrum or, or way of thinking for the Democrats right? Oh, for sure. And, you know, I think that, um, I mean, a lot of this revolves around, you know, sort of Joe Manchin's, you know, agenda. Right. And the the, one of the issues, I mean, what we need to watch is sort of the next two months of negotiation to see what gets sort of proposed on personal income tax rates. Right. There was some discussion around, you know, cutting off 
the tax-free nature of municipals at a certain threshold. Now that would get a ton of pushback from like local officials who rely on that as a source of financing um, and that incentive because it's tax-free. So, but you know, what Joe Manchin is looking for is he wants half of the money from, from higher taxes for deficit reduction, which is gonna be hard to achieve. Um, he also wants, you know, a veteran affairs style drug pricing negotiations, which is his own party does not. Um, and he also wants some breaks on, on fossil fuels. And so a lot of these things are, you know, these are real headwinds depending on, you know, how willing to compromise he is and how far apart he is with progressive Democrats. But there's no question that this all kicked off because he signaled to the Biden White House that he was willing to negotiate and and higher taxes, you know, both on corporations and, and individuals is definitely part of what he's proposing. Just from your from where you're sitting and dealing with wealthy clients and the like, what do you think would be the best, you know, or most effective way to tax people who are wealthy in order to, you know, achieve things that I think most people want, which is a you know, bring down the deficit, try to balance, do a better job balancing the budget, not be so dependent on foreign debt. I mean, that's a huge, it's huge. But, you know, we did it 20 years ago or 25 years ago, right, in the Clinton administration. Yep. So it is doable. Yeah. <laughs> and that I, deficit clock in, for uh, sure. in Times oh, Square, yeah. you know, running around like that. That was crazy. <laughs> no, I, I do. I lived 18 years in Manhattan, so I remember that clock. Yeah. So um, how, how does that, well, just if, if you were if you were tax lord for a day or for a week, what would you, what would you do? What would how how would you go about fixing some of these things? Well, I think what's most likely, I mean, the betting odds of getting anything done, right, based on that sort of closing that 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 chasm that's probably going to exist between Mansion and progressive Democrats, is that maybe this has you know a little bit of a greater than fifty or fifty five percent chance of of getting anything done uh, this year. We'll have to see how entrenched he is, but but the idea of of a progressive income tax on income over 10 million adjusted gross income, right? And that includes capital gains. It includes, you know, earned income, uh, and then an, an, a higher rate over 25 million. I mean, you know, the, the the potential is that could end up hitting, you know, small business or whether or not it it, it hurts capital formation uh, because it affects you know private equity and, and real estate, um, you know. Other people can debate that, but it, it accomplishes the same goal of taxing, you know, a small number of households, right? It's probably, I think there are 23,000 households uh, that had more than tw- uh, 10 million in adjusted gross income in 2020. So, you know, that that is the argument that you we're likely to hear, right? Um, you know, over the next two or three months. Do you think that's reasonable? You know, I mean, it, for a lot of people who feel that there's a lot of inequity in the carried interest loophole, um, you know, and sort of windfall profits for private equity and real right. estate transactions, it would it would address that issue. Um, you know, my my concern is that it would be, uh, you know, it, it could be potentially harmful to, to to private capital formation and whether or not it would end up you know, hurting small business owners who want to sell their business, um, you know, is another issue. But, you know, I, I think that that's what's most likely to happen. And it's taxing income. It's it's a little bit more straightforward or a lot more straightforward 
than trying to tax, you know, unrealized gains, um, which I think would be sort of hopelessly complex. And I don't know that the Biden budget, it, the, the, the proposal of, you know, this billionaire's tax of taxing unrealized gains was really on top of all the other proposed tax increases that were in the bill last year. So it's like it's a, it's additional money that that they didn't even really need, um, you know, in order to basically show that they could reduce the deficit by one trillion. So I, I think that that the complexity and the fact that, you know, Democrats have previously been against it was the reason that people didn't take it you know, that seriously um, is actually, you know, having a, a practical chance of being implemented. Taking it seriously is is the part that 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 sticks with me, um, you, you know, because, like I said, this seems like so pie in the sky with this idea of of a tax that might not even be constitutional or probably isn't constitutional. This but this it's a to campaign me suggests, slogan, Jeff. Well, yeah, I mean it's a but but it, to me it suggests a lack of seriousness on this this issue to come out with something like this and say. You know, even call it a billionaire minimum income tax when it clearly targets a lot of people who aren't billionaires. Nick, do you what do you think could get done? Can anything get done in the in the short amount of time that the uh, the Democrats will will ha- will certainly have a majority? And they, yeah, they so even, you know, I, I mean, I I think your um, I think your point is well taken, and I, I think that, like I said, I I think that it's really going to come down to, you know, negotiations. But I mean, some of the things that that Joe Manchin has asked for around LNG exports and and sort of, you know, FERC approval for pipelines, Biden has shown some interest in sort of negotiating on those. So, you know, that's why people are handicapping this as as passing with more than a 50% probability. But, you know, as far as as taxing unrealized gains um, and calling it a billionaire's tax, to your point, I think it was more sort of a signaling mechanism for sort of political posturing before the midterms mm-hmm. to say, look, the Democrats are, are for uh, taxing billionaires and the Republicans are not. And it's sort of as simple as that. Yeah. I just want a couple things for our audience that might not be completely into the, the Washington scene. Joe Manchin is a senator from West Virginia who is kind of goes against the grain with a lot of the things of, that his Democrat Democratic Party supports. And so I know you've referenced him a lot. Also, before we go, just if you don't mind, Nick, because you mentioned AMT, and I know that I was planning on asking you about that anyway, could you kind of sum that up for us? I mean, I, I think it was started in like 1969 or something like that, and it was designed to, like you said, capture a small minority of people that they found out weren't paying any income taxes and how that kind of got to be such a headache it is for tax planners right now. Yeah, it, the the concept was basically to disallow um, wealthy people from from you know taking uh, you know every sort of deduction under the sun to to you know lower their adjusted gross income. Uh, I mean, it got dramatically changed during um, you know the uh, 2017 Trump Tax Cut and Jobs Act, but um, you know it, I mean the debate is whether or not policymakers knew. Uh, that it would become this sort of, uh, you know, monster that rolled in sort of four and a half million taxpayers because, you know, f- for a long time it, it became, I think it was you know, generating like 26 or 30 billion, um, you know, in incremental federal revenue. And it, it kind of almost became too big, you know, to, to sort of tame or do away with. But 
a lot of people in the tax world and even pe- federal sort of, you know, people involved in tax legislation had sort of, you know, it, it was sort of a problem stepchild for many years. And a lot of people, you know, did not feel did not feel good about it. Yeah, and again, it begs the question, why don't they just index these things to inflation or something? Well, they, I mean, you bring up a, a fair point, which is that the idea that capital gains, you know, uh, are not indexed to inflation has sort of been a, you know, common complaint that has come up, right. uh, you know, again and again. And that's um, that's a tough one to pass with a 50-50 Senate. But, you know, with inflation running at 7.9% last month, it's... Um, you know, it's it's everybody right now is talking about, you know, kitchen table sort of costs and, and sort of real yeah. costs, not nominal. So, um, you know, this is a, I mean, look, part of the idea of raising taxes in, in this part of the cycle that we're in right now makes it a little bit more controversial because, um, you know, it's um, we're probably setting up for slower economic growth uh, as it is, just given that the Fed has a, some tough work ahead of itself to try to engineer a soft landing and, and take interest rates higher to, to tame inflation. It's going to be obviously a lot of investor debate around that right now today. The thing about I, indexing things to inflation always, it, it just, to me, it underscores sort of the the childishness and the, 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 the silliness of things in Congress, in Washington. Um, I remember, uh, man, it was probably 10 or 15 years ago, I read a book by, uh, it was a I guess it was kind of a memoir by Chris Matthews, and he was talking about his time working for Ted Kennedy uh, as some kind of an aide or something like that. And he taught—he he was a young guy at the time, and he said, uh, you know, he saw the minimum wage debate coming up again, and he goes, "Why don't? Why doesn't Congress just pass a law to index that to inflation, and you'll never have to have this debate again?" And and Kennedy told him, he says because then we wouldn't be able to bring it up every time and make us look better than the people who yeah. are opposed to it. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, the, the irony of all of this, guys, is, you know, if you look at federal tax receipts right now, I mean, shareholder wealth last year in 2021 was up like $10 trillion. And, you know, there was so much panic among our own clients, right, about the capital gains rate going up, that what you saw was in the second half of 21, uh, a lot of people realized capital gains just to sort of take advantage of what they thought was a 23.8% rate that was going to be going up to 30 plus. And so, you know, uh, federal tax revenues as a percentage of GDP, I mean, if you look at it, you know, on a 30-year graph, it's it's actually way above trend line right now. But, you know, so is federal spending. Um, but, the you know, going back to our, our comment about sort of, be, you know, consumer behavior around tax changes, um, I mean, it was actually stunning to see how much federal tax revenue was raised last year from people real, trying to front run the change or the potential change. And it didn't happen, right? And it didn't happen. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe maybe it'll happen this year, guys. <laughs> maybe. Well, maybe, maybe not. Tuned. I think what Nick is saying is that you're going to if you're making 10 million or 25 million dollars in, in, in uh, gross income all in. Uh, you have a coin flip of a of a chance of winding up paying higher taxes, right, Nick? Mm-hmm. I think that's exactly right. And if it doesn't happen this year, we're likely to have divided government, and it's it's not likely that the Democrats will have an opportunity to do this again for probably you know at least three or four years. Yeah, I'm going to be interested to see you know because it's very likely, right, that the Democrats are going to lose at least the House. 
they might be able to hold on to the Senate. Um, but if there is some kind of rush of legislation between November and the end of December, when the Democrats still have control, even though they've, you know, they've they've lost the election. Well, you 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 just that that brings us back to the beginning of this conversation, which is so much of this. I would say the vast majority is about politics, and you're right. This is a, a sort of you know a three month to four month window in which to to address a lot of sort of political vulnerabilities before the midterms. And uh, I mean, that's why we saw this gigantic, you know, SPR release today where they're trying to basically take down gasoline prices. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, a a lot of this obviously is, uh, you know, whether or not we get a red wave in the House. Um, But I think that, you know, this is this is the three month window ahead of us, three to four months where we'll basically find out. Right now, I do believe it's a little bit better than a, a flip of a coin. All right. On that note, thank you very much, Nick, for joining us and enlightening us. And yeah, fascinating, uh, really fascinating. We'll uh, we'll have to have you on here again when there's the next time there's a big giant trial balloon floated <laughs> to uh, tax people's you know their weight or hair color or something. I don't know. Whatever, whatever, whatever gets people excited. Hey guys, thanks for having me on. Enjoyed speaking with you. All right. Thanks, Jeff. Uh, launching every Monday. It's the Investment News Podcast. We want to thank our special guest for this week, Nick Frelinghuysen, Managing Director and Portfolio Manager of the Chilton Trust. We also want to thank our producer, Angelica Hester. Of course, you can find the podcast at investmentnews.com. Check us out also on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and Stitcher. Leave us a review on Apple. Please follow us on Spotify. You can pester Jeff on Twitter uh, and tweet at him. His handle is at Benji Ryder. You can pester me too. Mine is at BD News Guy. Stay tuned because we'll be talking to you next week. Mm-hmm.